friends. Hello campers. Welcome back to Girls Camp. I'm your host Haley Rawl. I hope you are all doing well. I wish I could hear how you're all doing. I am hanging in there myself. It's been kind of a doozy of a week to be honest with you and that is my own damn fault because I ran out of my Prozac. My trusty Prozac which I have been on for the better part of probably five years now And I always do this thing, it's the same pattern every time, where my prescription is running out and I'm like, I need to call and refill it, I need to call and refill it, and then I procrastinate it and I don't refill it, and then I run out of it and I go cold turkey off my medication because I've ran out, and then I get really depressed and anxious, and then it feels even harder for me to call my prescription in, which... I do not know why that is a thing, but there is no greater chore for me than calling in a prescription. Last time I got my Prozac refilled, I went to a new doctor because I hadn't gone to a doctor up here in Lehigh. And anyway, it was kind of a whole thing that I had to figure out before I could get my prescription refilled. And so I've been off of my Prozac for like a week and a half. And that is not a good thing to do. You should never go cold turkey off of antidepressants. It's just left me in kind of a crazy emotional place this week, but do not worry. I called and I'm picking up my Prozac refill at 10 a.m. tomorrow morning and hopefully I can stabilize my mood a little bit because my brain does better with a little extra serotonin from my SSRI. I wanted to mention that because, you know, even though I've been on an antidepressant for so long and it's literally changed my life, saved my life, I would even say, I still feel a little bit of shame and stigma around it. And I think part of the reason I have such a hard time refilling my prescription is because there's a little piece of me that thinks, I don't really need this. I shouldn't need this anymore, which is odd because rationally, I'm fine taking it. But that stigma, that guilt kind of kicks in that I need something to be mentally healthy. I just know that there's a lot of us out there on antidepressants and we might feel different ways about it, but I just want you to know you're not alone. I love my antidepressant so very much. On top of the antidepressant running out, I've also just had a pretty emotional week anyway. I've been going through some stuff with friends that's been really hard for me, and I wanted to mention that too because I don't feel like adult friendships are talked about enough. And I feel like having friendship shifts and changes can be immensely devastating, even as an adult, which is something I didn't anticipate. Anyway, I'm just kind of going through some friend changes and readjusting expectations around some of my friendships that have felt really, really hard. Anyway, I'm not saying this to like subtweet anyone who might be listening. But I do just want to mention it again because I have felt kind of isolated in the feeling of working through friendship stuff and feeling so sad about it. I've kind of opened up to a few more people in my life and found that those people have had very similar circumstances and similar hurt around some of their friendships. And again, just want to let you know if that's something you're dealing with, you are not alone. 
It seems to be one of the universal experiences of being a human. Relationships change and sometimes they change in ways that feel really hard. It's not easy, but it has helped me to know that I'm not alone in navigating that. And I want you to know you're not alone either. You know, I feel like I go through phases of change and adjustment. And then I usually find myself on the other side being happy that I went through that and realizing that there is good things in store on the other side of it, but I felt a little bit of growing pains around some of that lately. Thanks for listening to me go on about my mental health per usual. What else is a campfire chat for? But I haven't even mentioned the topic of today's episode, which is a doozy. It's a big one. It is perhaps the pinnacle of the Mormon experience of Mormon theology. It is Mormon temples, what goes on, why are we not supposed to talk about it? How do we feel about talking about it now? There's a lot to get into around Mormon temples, and I cannot wait to unpack this all together. I've already been having really good DM conversations around sharing temple names and kind of what comes along with that psychologically and emotionally, and there is just plenty to get into. My plan for this episode is I want to do a very, very, very basic Mormon Temple 101, where I just go over kind of the dealio with Mormon temples. And then I'm going to jump right into the write-ins because I got some really, really good, good is kind of not the right word to use there. But I got a lot of stories that I think will kind of guide us through all the elements and facets of Mormon temple worship and how we felt about it and how we feel about it now, and also just some crazy, funny things that happen to some of you in Mormon temple situations too. So that's the plan. Before I give a Mormon Temple Basics 101, I want to make a couple quick disclaimers. Disclaimer number one, I am not an expert on temple stuff. Temple stuff is very complicated, very ambiguous, very vague, and also very difficult to find a lot of information on. And I know this full well because I have spent a lot of time today on Google and been feeling shocked at how hard it is to find information about what goes on in Mormon temples. Also feeling shocked that even though I went through the Mormon temple, I've gone to Mormon temples my whole life and done everything there is to do in a temple and served a mission for a church, which its whole ultimate goal is to get people to the temple. I still have a really difficult time articulating A, what goes on in temples and finding information about temples that feels like it actually speaks to the temple experience. That is, again, just very interesting in and of itself. And in my opinion, is kind of a big old red flag around temple stuff. But I wanted to say I'm not an expert. I'm going to be speaking to what I know and my experience. I will do my best to be accurate and fair. But if I get something wrong, I'm sorry. And if you're listening and you're a temple expert of any sort, if you have any temple history, education, or knowledge, please email me because I would love to do a more theological, doctrinal deep dive on temple stuff with someone who knows their shit better than I know my shit. The second disclaimer I wanted to make is... I know that temples are a particularly touchy subject for Mormons, maybe even post-Mormons. I believe 
that that is because there is intensely deep indoctrination around keeping what goes on in the temple secret. And people can argue sacred versus secret all they want. In my opinion, I think it's secret. I think that secrecy is intentional. And I think it works really well to get people afraid about talking about temple experiences. It has been interesting as I've prepared for this episode to even feel some of that come up for me, some fear around sharing about the temple, even though I do not buy into anything around Mormonism anymore. I keep finding myself thinking, is this okay to talk about? And then I'm like, oh, wait, yeah, it's fine. I can talk about it. I experienced it. I no longer have to abide by the rules of secrecy that Mormonism taught me around temple worship. I can talk about it. We can talk about it. But it's scary and it feels different than other Mormon stuff. I just wanted to say that I also know the temple is very sacred and special for some people, and that is their experience. And I can honor that, but I can also honor my own experience, which is that it was deeply uncomfortable for me, and the further I get from it, the more problematic I find it. That's what I'm going to be talking about. So if you're listening as an active Mormon or a progressive Mormon, of course, you are always warmly welcome. But I'm going to be talking about temple worship openly, talking about what goes on. And I also am sharing my experience, which was not great, generally speaking. So if that's something you want to participate in that you want to listen to, listen along. But I just wanted you to know that's what we're doing here today. Okay, explaining temple worship is tricky, tricky, as I just said, and I don't want to spend too much time getting mired in the details, so I'm going to do my best to just kind of barrel through, get the gist of what goes on in the temple out there for those who don't know or for those of us who need a refresher, and I'm not going to be digging into much of the intricacies of it, just kind of setting the stage contextually. And then I think as we jump into these stories, we will start to kind of tease out the different facets of temple worship and probably talk about different details of it. But I do want to say, if you do not know anything about temples, what I would recommend doing is going on Reddit or YouTube, looking up Mormon temple endowment session. There are people who have filmed it. Some people have like snuck their phones in and filmed stuff that goes on in the temple. I would watch that. That's going to do a way better job at giving you a feel for what goes on there than anything I can explain because it's just weird and hard to explain. So my first interaction with the temple was as a 12-year-old. You can start going to the temple when you're 12 to do baptisms for the dead. Yes, you heard me right. You go to the temple and you get baptized again by proxy for people who have died. And the thinking around this is that if people have died without getting baptized, you are giving them the chance to accept the baptism that you're doing on their behalf. There are some ethical implications, in my opinion, around doing, quote, temple work or performing religious rituals for other people that are dead and cannot consent to having that done for them. But they do say the people who you get baptized for have the opportunity to accept that or not. But even still, there's already some ethical implications coming into play. When I was 12, I was not really worried about the ethical implications. What I was worried about when I went and did baptisms for the dead was being in a white jumpsuit, which is what you wear when you get baptized, and not wearing underwear underneath. 
They give you like a little sports bra to wear. And I'm trying to remember if they give you underwear or if you don't wear underwear. Because some of you wrote in about this. So maybe we will revisit that question. But you're wearing a white jumpsuit and you go into water to get baptized. And you'll get baptized for like 10 different people who've died. You're getting baptized for and in behalf of this person. Dunk. Again, dunk. And you get dunked. Bam, bam, bam. 10 times in a row. The fear of mine, the anxiety I had as a 12-year-old girl is that I was going to start my period in my white jumpsuit and or in the water. Because again, you're wearing a white jumpsuit, you don't have any underwear on, and you're in the water. And I just remember the whole time just being like, I'm going to start my period. I just know it. Also, the temple is white. So anywhere you sit is white. A lot of you wrote in about the same fear of starting your period in the temple. Other than that, as a 12-year-old, I was kind of down for baptisms for the dead. You go put on the jumpsuit. You get in some warm baptismal font water. You get baptized. No big deal. You get dressed. And then you go get confirmed for those same people, which is just a blessing laying on of hands. And that's kind of what you do in the temple until you are old enough to take out your endowment. The endowment session is mainly what we think of when we think of going and doing temple work. You can do an endowment when you go to the temple, initiatories or sealings. Sealings are when you go get married in the temple. If you get married in the temple, you get sealed to your partner. And then when you go back, if you want to go back and do sealings, again, you're doing it for dead people by proxy. So you only go and do your own temple work once the sealing, the initiatory, and the endowment. And then anytime Mormons go back to the temple, they are doing temple work for people who have died, going through the motions, because apparently that's what God requires, is that the motions are physically gone through in order for the dead people to take those covenants for themselves. So you can go and do sealings, which is when you get married, you kneel across an altar, you agree to be sealed to the other person, pretty straightforward. You can do initiatories or an endowment. But when you go through for your first time, if you go through, when people go through <laughs> for their first time, you go and do an initiatory and an endowment session. The initiatory, man, the initiatory. How do I explain this in a way that's going to make any sense? Basically, you go into a little room, you are blessed as a woman by a woman or as a man by a man, you are blessed, the different parts of your body are blessed in a blessing that is spoken to you. Then they rub oil on your head at one point as part of the blessing, and that's kind of the initiatory. The thing about the initiatory that I do want to mention is that up until 2005, when you did the initiatory, you would be naked underneath like a poncho poncho that had openings on the side. And when they blessed the different parts of your body, they would actually touch your naked body underneath the poncho, as far as I understand. And I was all over Reddit, like trying to triple confirm that this is true. I almost called my mom and asked if this was the case because she would have done this up until 2005. But I'm pretty sure they would touch you underneath your clothes when they were blessing like your shoulder or your leg and like touch your body underneath the poncho. When I went through the temple and did my initiatories, they had changed it and you wore garments underneath this like shield, they call it, which is kind of like a big dress and you are not touched besides on your forehead. But I didn't know about the touching naked body stuff until after I had left the church. I did not know that that was ever a thing. And I know that understandably so many people take issue with that because it's just kind of a weird thing. And a hard thing for a lot of people, as you can imagine, again, for many reasons, to be touched on their naked body. 
by strangers, essentially. They do have women do this to other women and men to other men, so there's not that element of it, but it's pretty strange. Also just weird because it's just the church's MO to make significant changes to things like temple worship and then never explain why they made the change or ever say, oh, you know, maybe we shouldn't have had people be mostly naked in the first place. They just like quietly change it and then nobody ever really talks about it again. So that's one of those things. For the endowment session, you put on a temple dress or temple clothes as a man, like a white shirt and pants, stockings, white slippers, you're wearing all white. You go into a theater, a room that's all white, and you watch a movie and are kind of guided and walked through this learning experience, maybe I would say, where you watch a movie that starts with God creating the earth, God and Jesus creating the earth up until the fall of Adam and Eve when they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And then you are being taught how Adam and Eve were taught to return back into God's presence as they were in the Garden of Eden. So you watch a movie, you're in your temple dress, and part of the movie, they will pause the movie and have you stand up at different parts of the movie when they're walking through Adam and Eve's like journey of the fall. And you will put on different parts of this temple outfit. So you have a little packet of temple clothes and you put it on. So there's like an apron of leaves that symbolizes Adam and Eve like covering themselves with leaves. And there's like a sash that you have to put on a specific way and tie at a certain place on your body. And there's a veil for women and a hat for men. And you're slowly putting on these temple clothing items in like a very specific sequence coordinated with this movie. And then the movie ends. Then the temple workers are going off the script as if like a continuation of the movie almost, where they are teaching you signs and tokens and covenants that you are to know in order to make it back to God's presence to go to heaven. This is so hard to explain, which is why I'm saying just go watch a video of it because if you don't know, I think it's good to know and interesting to see, but it's again just kind of hard to sum up. But for example, one of the signs and tokens is you hold your arm out, left arm, your hands in a cup, right arm, your palm is down to the ground, and then that thing you do, that gesture is then connected to a name and like a covenant and the covenants you are covenanting to like you're making promises to do stuff but the covenants themselves are pretty vague one of the covenants you make is consecration i think and it's to consecrate your life to god and the gospel but it doesn't really necessarily say how you're supposed to do that it's not very specific i guess i'm saying you're learning a lot of things at once you're making these promises you're doing these signs and signals that you're supposed to remember you're kind of walking through this as a group and if this is sounding really crazy and kind of like science fiction that's how it felt for me it felt very science fictiony it felt for me at the first time I went, very culty because you're wearing these strange outfits that look weird and that you're not used to. And you are learning signs and tokens where you all in the room together are making the same gestures and like repeating words back. Then after you do all that, there's a point in the session where you do what's called a prayer circle, where there's an altar, the temple worker stands at the altar, and then whoever wants to join the prayer circle walks up to the front of the room. They get in a circle, man, woman, man, woman, like every other. 
and you have to put your elbow on the shoulder of the person next to you with your hand up, like in a right angle, and you like chant a prayer together. So the temple worker will say something and then you all chant it back. You guys, I'm not kidding. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's so, so many of you have been DMing me the same thing, but it's just a trip. It's a trip to be talking about this where I'm at now and just realize I was just doing that. I was just doing that. I just went, joined the prayer circle, put my arm up, The women have to put the veil over their faces at this point, putting a veil over my face and like chanting words to in a group, in a circle, chanting like prayer things. And what you're praying for in the prayer circle, I think is just like, I can't even remember. I think the temple worker just says like kind of a generic prayer, but you're all like praying together. And then there's a point where you chant words together and you all do like similar hand signals also as you're chanting words like you put your arms in the air all together and like slowly bring your hands down and I'm sorry this is so not sequential and so all over the place because it's too difficult to go like piece by piece but hopefully you're getting an idea and hopefully you're understanding and hearing in how I'm explaining this that it's a weird thing it's hard to make sense of Again, I went to the temple a ton of times. I probably did an endowment at least 30 times, and I never really understood it. After the prayer circle, you are taken to a veil, a simulation veil, which is a large white sheet where you are then to do the signs and tokens you just learned to this person behind the veil who's pretending to be God, and then they bring you through the veil into the celestial room, it's called, which is supposed to be like heaven. It's a big white room where you're done with the endowment session. You sit in there and you reflect on the covenants you just made, or you sit in panic and horror at what you just went through, if you're me. (laughs) Um, No, I think my first time going through the temple, I think I was a little bit dissociated. I just did it. And I think my brain kind of turned off and I was just like, well, this is what you do. I didn't feel comfortable with it. And I always felt anxious doing it, but I just kind of thought this is what you do. There's a weird rhetoric in Mormonism where a lot of people have a really hard time with the temple because it's so bizarre and different. And I feel like it's this weird manipulation tactic, whether intentional or unintentional, where they tell you it's going to be weird and you're going to think it's really weird. And that's okay that you think it's weird. You'll get used to it. You'll learn more about it and you'll eventually love the temple and find a lot of peace there. And so you're kind of prepared to feel weird. And then when it feels really, really weird, you're like, oh, well, you know, I guess this is what it is. You feel weird and then you get used to it or you learn something sometime that makes you feel better about it. And for me, as I continued to go back to the temple because I thought I needed to, to be a good Mormon and a good person, I always felt deeply, deeply, deeply anxious there. A, I felt bored out of my mind because it's very long and boring to do an endowment session. And B, I just felt a lot of dissonance. It didn't make sense to me. It didn't feel like it was helping me or anyone in any tangible way. And it felt weird that there was this secretive ritualistic thing going on. And that was mainly my experience, I would say, with going to the temple. I never really liked it. It always seemed strange. It always felt off. I don't know if I felt any intense betrayal that I wasn't prepared for the temple, but I do think it was a weird thing to go through, feel like it was weird, but look around and have like family members be there and friends be there and be like, 
oh, I guess this is just what we've agreed to do. I guess we all just do this. I know a lot of us felt that and feel that looking back. That would be my main takeaway from my Mormon temple worship was I just always felt like this is really weird, but it seems like we're all just doing it. So I guess I'm just going to do it too. Couple quick things to mention before we dive into the stories and after my extremely anecdotal and kind of chaotic run through of temple worship, forgive me. I wanted to mention that a lot of temple worship is connected to Freemason rituals. And I'm not going to get into all the details of that, but I think that's important to note because I didn't know anything about that when I was a Mormon. And then when I left the church, I learned that a lot of the hand signals you do and just like different aspects of the endowment session are really similar to Freemason rituals. And Joseph Smith was known to be a Freemason. So makes sense. I just feel like that's important to mention because I was always sold this idea that temple worship was given to us directly from God, that it was this really kind of special thing Mormons had, the temple thing, but really it was in a lot of ways just inspired by Freemasonry, which challenges that idea, at least in my mind. Speaking of Freemasonry, another relic of Freemasonry that was part of the temple endowment session up until 1990 is something called the Blood Oath. And let me just read this quick little blurb about the Blood Oath. You know, just casual, a Blood Oath. Okay, this says, this is on Wikipedia, I know, I know, but they cite their sources. Go check my sources if you think it's not legitimate. In Mormonism, a penalty was an oath made by participants of the original Nauvoo Endowment Ceremony instituted by Joseph Smith in 1843 and further developed by Brigham Young. Mormon critics refer to the penalty as a, quote, blood oath because it required the participants to swear to never reveal certain key symbols of the endowment ceremony, including the penalty itself while symbolically enacting ways in which a person may be executed. The penalties were similar to oaths made as part of a particular rite of Freemasonry practiced in New York at the time the endowment was developed. During the 20th century, the LDS Church softened the graphic nature of the penalties and in 1990 removed them altogether. This is important to mention because that means that up until 1990, people in the Mormon temple were promising to not reveal what they were learning in the temple on threat of actual death and mimicking slitting their throat, mimicking cutting their stomach open and their bowels, guts falling out. That was part of the Mormon temple endowment session. So I think it makes a lot of sense why there is such an intense fear around speaking about what goes on in the temple, because it used to be up until 1990, not all that long ago, that in the temple, you were actually promising not to reveal what happened upon threat of killing yourself. In the temple endowment session now, you also are told, do not reveal the signs and tokens to anybody. It's a really big deal. You think you're promising to God, don't tell anybody these signs and tokens. So that just goes to show how intense the secrecy culture is around Mormon temple worship. Because in addition to learning these things and doing these things, you are also making promises that you will never tell anyone these things. I also wanted to mention quickly the temple name thing. I talked about my temple name in the episode with Kylie. A temple name is a new name that's given to you when you go through the temple. You are taught to believe, or at least I interpreted it as a very special name that had some 
importance, it was revealed that this should be your temple name. When really, as I found out later, they just have a list of names that they cycle through based on the day of the year. So anyone who goes through the temple on May 5th, who's a woman, would be given the same name. So mine was Tabitha. Anyone who went through that same day, no matter where they were in the world, they would also be given the name Tabitha. By the way, if you've DM'd me and let me know that your temple name is also Tabitha, like mine, I love that so much. What a special reclamation of something that is steeped in so much secrecy and weirdness to be able to be like, hey, like I'm a Tabitha too. I absolutely love that. I think the whole temple name thing is really crazy because there is a lot of fear around sharing your temple name specifically. And it wasn't until a long time after leaving the Mormon church that I felt like I could tell people my temple name because I still felt a deep fear and a deep, deep shame around revealing that piece of information, which A, was about myself and B, is arbitrary, I think now in retrospect. I think that speaks to the intense level of fear that gets pounded into your brain as a Mormon to have so much intense secrecy around something is never healthy, in my opinion. Never, ever healthy, gigantic red flag. That was a bit of a chaotic run through, as I said. Very anecdotal, very chaotic, but it is what it is. I cannot talk for weeks on end about the intricacies of everything that goes on at the temple. I'm going to jump into the stories and we can kind of start to dig into these other details as we go along. Okay, first submission. When my husband and I were married, we tried to go to the temple once a month-ish because everyone had told us how important it was. But the endowment session was so anxiety-inducing to me that I'd only agree to go do ceilings. Same. I always convince Bentley, I'll go to the temple, but only to do ceilings because they're way faster and way less stressful. At the time, the birth control I was on had some weird effects on my circulation. So one time I'm there kneeling at the altar for five to 10 minutes at a time doing ceilings. And next thing I know, I'm waking up on the ground and my husband and some random men are trying to help me up. I had fully passed out because I was kneeling too long and I ended up in some tiny medical room with an elderly temple worker who pushed orange juice and crackers on me for a while, then asked me if I like steak and told my husband to take me to Texas Roadhouse immediately. She also said apparently this happens semi-often I was active for eight more years after that, but avoided the temple as much as I could get away with. The anxiety always outweighs any peace people had promised. A million times yes. Whenever I was in the temple, I had a lot of like bodily reactions. I remember always feeling kind of faint and like lightheaded and almost disoriented. And I think I was probably just having low grade panic attacks. But I was also always so scared of passing out because I remember doing ceilings. You kneel across an altar and you're kneeling there for a while. And I went in once and the temple worker was like, hey, you know, be careful when you're kneeling across the altar because that blood can start to pool in your knees and you might pass out. So already kind of lightheaded and disoriented, I kneel down at the altar and I'm just like, oh my gosh, now all I can think about is the blood pooling in the back of my knees. And I started to get super dizzy and kind of blacking out. And I had to ask them to go sit back down. <laughs> so I also almost passed out in the temple. I didn't actually pass out, but I think that is super common. I had many of you write in and say you passed out in the temple, which yes, I think there's something to be said about kneeling or locking your knees if you're standing in the prayer circle or something. But I also think there's something to be said about our bodies being like, mm, this doesn't feel right. Our bodies were trying to tell us something. Okay, next one. 
My temple name was Donna. When it was told to me the first time, I was convinced that God gave me that name because he knew how much I loved Mama Mia. Wow, the things we would convince ourselves of to make everything seem inspired. I wonder if all of the other 50 plus girls going through the temple for the first time that day loved Mama Mia too. (laughs) Oh, Donna, what a temple name. I also had someone write in and say their temple name was Donna, I think, but they said they remembered it because Jersey Shore was really popular at the time, and I guess there's a Dina in Jersey Shore, so that's how they remembered their temple name. You also feel a lot of stress at remembering your temple name because they only whisper it to you once, and then you have to remember it, and you're told that's the name you need to get into heaven. The pressure of remembering the name was what I think made me forget my temple name so much, and I talked about this with Kylie, but... But I convinced myself my temple name was Phoebe, and it was Tabitha. And I don't know where I even got Phoebe from, but I think I was trying so hard to remember my temple name that I kind of like freaked my own brain out. Okay, someone says, this is the least important thing, but I could not get over how campy the temple video was. Why does Adam have a comb over? How can they shake hands with disembodied angels? Why is everyone so white except for one random apostle? Satan's like, you can buy anything in this world with money. Bro, there's literally two people on earth. (laughs) Yeah, the temple video, you've got to Google it because it is peak camp. It is peak camp. The fact that it's not self-aware of how campy it is is kind of incredible. And the actors who are playing Adam and Eve and God and Jesus and Peter, James, and John are in the movie are just so bad. Bless their hearts. I don't think they're necessarily bad actors, but just the way the whole thing is set up is like this weird play where it's like no one's really acting they're kind of just reciting these lines and then there's a character a person who plays satan in this movie of the fall of adam and eve and the satan was always just trying so hard overacting his little heart out there was one specific satan because you would get a different temple movie they had multiple different movies so i would go to the endowment session and be like is it going to be the movie with this satan or that satan and then the movie would start and i'd be like oh i got the this other movie like i like this one better the actors are better in this one it's more interesting so the whole temple video thing is wild you've got to look it up Next submission. Just the lack of actual consent in the endowment ceremony is astounding to look back on. I went through a couple of weeks before getting married and most of my family and my now husband's family were there. The second the person or recording said you could leave if you weren't ready to make the eternal covenants, I started crying. Like, yes, I'd actually rather leave, but the pressure with everyone there, that didn't feel like an option. It wasn't really. I didn't even know what I was covenanting to. I think I cried the whole way through. I'm certain my mom thought it was the spirit, but I felt so scared. I made it through the veil and hugged my husband and just bawled. Not great vibes. Never really felt peace in the temple. Ugh, the consent thing is so annoying and wrong and problematic and unethical because, yeah, they say at the beginning of the endowment session, you can leave if you want to, but you don't even know what you're getting into. So how can you even say yes? And not to mention, as this person said, there's so much pressure. You're not just going to walk out and be like, "Mm, actually, I don't feel comfortable with this. When so many family members and friends often come to a first endowment session and you just feel like you have to stay 
Because again, you don't know what you're staying for, but even if you feel a discomfort around it, I just think there is no real consent when it comes to temple worship, which is why, a big part of why I think it's so important that we break the stigma around talking about it, because we got sworn to secrecy about something that we didn't even know what it was, and we were sworn to secrecy before we even could realize what it was. And that's just completely unfair. And it's unfair to experience something that many of us found traumatic and then be told you actually can't even talk about that thing. And we deserve to be able to talk about and process our feelings and our experiences in the temple. We deserve that and it's okay. And there will be many a Mormon, believe me, they are all up in my DMs that will say, that's disrespectful. This is sacred for people. How could you talk about this publicly? No, we get to talk about it publicly, and if it's sacred and special to you, and it's not something you want to talk about outside of the temple, that's fine, but I no longer abide by those rules, and I refuse to abide by those rules that got me in a very uncomfortable, non-consensual situation in the first place. Next one. This one's a little more funny. Lighten up the mood a little bit. A friend told me that when you get up for the prayer circle in the endowment ceremony, you sacrifice a chicken. I was terrified my first time around. After realizing the falsehood, but doing the weird raising our arms and chanting in the prayer circle, I almost wished it was a chicken sacrifice. This is so true. Literally, a chicken sacrifice kind of feels more normal than what actually happens. At least more straightforwardly weird. Like you could be like, oh yeah, there's animal sacrifice. That's weird and kind of crazy and we shouldn't be doing that. But it's less subtly bizarre in a way that's more difficult to articulate. So I'm with you. I honestly think that this speaks to how weird it feels when you're like, "Mm, I think I'd rather they just like sacrifice a chicken in front of me instead of what I did instead. Okay, next submission. After Razband's shutdown talk about Heavenly Mother in the 2022 women's session of General Conference, I was very disappointed and angry. So I went to the temple. Surely, if a Heavenly Mother exists, there will be evidence of her there. I wept through the entire session as my hope was snuffed out by the realization that a female presence was completely absent from the creation of the heavens, the earth, and Adam and Eve. How could she not be involved? Where was she? I believe now there's not a more bullshit, placating piece of doctrine than the promise of a heavenly mother. I was also crushed by the simultaneous realization that I was physically and financially taking part in a cis-hetero-exclusive club by just being in the endowment session. I never stepped foot in a temple again. You're a badass for cutting the cord. That's a hard thing to do. And I never stepped foot in a temple again. Makes me want to snap for you. But yes, the Heavenly Mother thing, Mormons like started talking about that more. I was still kind of part of the church at that point. And then leadership said, stop talking about Heavenly Mother, essentially. And it's so true that there is no presence of a Heavenly Mother in the endowment session. And I just think it's so important to point out what this person said, which is, okay, if you're Mormon and you think the temple is sacred and special to you, I can respect that in a sense. However, what I cannot respect is that the temple is so, so exclusive to gay people, to transgender people, to anyone who is not willing to conform in order to get a temple recommend. You're not allowed in. You are not deemed worthy to go in. So there is an exclusivity, a very real exclusivity to who is allowed in the temple. And that's where things get 
objectively problematic to me is, okay, you can have your experience with the temple, but when you're participating in something that by its very nature excludes people who are gay, for example, that's bad. And I do not think we should be participating in spaces where people are excluded for their gender orientation, for their sexuality. It is wrong. And I think that is objectively problematic. So yes, I can in one sense say, okay, if you enjoy the temple, whatever, that's your thing. But that's where it gets problematic for anyone who's like, I love the temple. And it's like, well, yeah, you're allowed to because you're cisgender and heterosexual. And that's a space that very intentionally excludes people who do not fit inside that box. Next, write-in. My second time ever going to the temple, I went by myself. I still didn't understand the whole thing with the new name. So once I got to the celestial room, I asked a temple worker what it means. She told me it's not something we talk about and that I would need to talk to a member of the temple presidency about it if I wanted to ask questions. She walked me to the temple president's office and had me sit on a chair outside to wait. I sat and waited, feeling like I was sitting outside the principal's office. The longer I waited, the more I felt like I was in trouble. After about 15 minutes or so, I decided to give up and leave. I felt like I was being encouraged to go to the temple more, but never allowed to ask questions about it all, especially not the question, why? The next time I went, I saw a woman in the celestial room kneeling by a chair to pray. I decided to do the same. In the middle of my prayer, a temple worker interrupted me and told me that we don't kneel to pray in the temple. I was just a kid, 19 years old, trying to understand what was going on and do the right thing. But I was scolded and made to feel stupid the first two times I went on my own. The temple felt like a place where I was supposed to just be quiet and do what I was told. We were supposed to ask questions and go back to learn, but I guess we can only ask the right kind of questions and be shamed in the learning process. Oof. (sighs) I just feel that. I feel that feeling of being like, I'm just here. I'm just like trying to make it work. I'm just trying to do the thing and trying to maybe find these little ways to ask questions, to find more peace around my dissonance. Or like to kneel and pray if I fucking want to. And then to be made to feel like you're doing something wrong that you weren't even given proper information about in the first place is really shitty. It also just makes me really sad, this story, that there's just a focus on things that just don't matter. It just shouldn't matter. And especially in a place that's supposed to be the pinnacle of peace and worship, where you're supposed to feel so close to God and to Jesus And then to be really micromanaged in how you want to go about that and be told you're breaking the rules because you want to kneel and pray when it's not disturbing anyone is so upsetting to me. And I think it's just a really good example of how far off the mark the temple always felt. Like it just didn't feel like it was doing anything good. And it didn't feel like a place I could go and feel safe and feel connected to God. It felt like a place I had to go and do things in a very specific, very meticulous, right way. And it gave me so much anxiety that I was going to do it wrong. And that's a very real fear that you feel. And there's a lot of guilt and shame on feeling like you're worshiping incorrectly in the temple. And the whole idea of even worshiping, quote, incorrectly is so against everything that I believe now that it just upsets me. And I also feel that that brought up a lot for me. So thank you for writing that in. And I'm sorry that you went through that because it's so shitty and so annoying. Next submission. I was 19 when I went through the temple and before I went through a young women's leader who I was close to at the time and who is still a faithful member of the church today pulled me aside and said, 
You should know the first time I went through the temple, my first thoughts were, oh my gosh, this is a cult. And then she smiled and said, but it's okay. It's such a wonderful spiritual experience. If this doesn't sum up the Mormon mentality around the temple, let me repeat that. Oh my gosh, this is a cult, but it's okay. It's such a wonderful spiritual experience. It's so interesting because even in the Mormon church, there's this rhetoric that the temple is weird. And it's like, oh no, you know, it's weird. And it might feel kind of culty and like, oh, haha, you don't know what's going to happen. But it's so spiritual and wonderful. And it's the best, most peaceful place on earth. And it's like, how can it be both things? And if it is so wonderful, then why in the same breath did you say it feels like a cult? There's something to be said. If a lot of people are feeling like it's culty, but then the rhetoric is like, yeah, but just get over it. Or, you know, it gets better. You figure it out. Well, why does it have to be culty in the first place? Maybe let's just not make it culty or question, really critically look at why it feels culty. And if that's a good thing, it's so funny because I do feel like even Mormons will acknowledge that it's strange and cult-like, but in the same breath be like, but it's so lovely and wonderful though. And then when you go through the temple, I may have mentioned this before, but then when you go through the temple, you feel like, oh, okay, other people think it's culty too. So I guess that's just part of it. But I guess it's culty and it's wonderful. And then you're not able just to be like, oh, this is culty and I don't want to be part of a cult. So I'm going to like get out of here because you've already been trained to say, oh, maybe it's a little culty, but it's also wonderful and I just don't quite understand it yet. And that's really tricky, really manipulative messaging that I think borderlines on mind control if it is not just mind control, whether intentional or unintentional. Next, write in. When my shelf started breaking, I used to go to the temple every dang week and even volunteered as a temple worker for a while because everyone said it was the most peaceful place on earth. But I've never felt lonelier than when I sat in the celestial room week after week by myself without my friends or family. And all I could think was, this is what heaven's going to be like. And it was just so terrible that I started dreading the temple. (sighs) Yeah, that's hard. It speaks again, I think, to the exclusivity of the temple, there's this thing where it's like, oh, this is what heaven's going to be like. And you start to feel, oh, there's people I love that aren't allowed in this version of heaven, again, for things like their sexual orientation or for life decisions they're making that don't seem like should exclude them from heaven. I also think this speaks to the general vibe of the temple, which I will share my thoughts on. I find the temple very sterile. And I talked about this when I went through the Temple Open House because I went through the Temple Open House in Saratoga Springs where it's open to the public so you don't need to recommend to go. Walking through was so wild because I realized that when I used to go to the temple, there was still this belief that I had that was able to kind of put some sort of a feeling onto the temple experience that I was able to make it feel important or peaceful maybe in a way because it is white and it is quiet and there was something about that that I think I found peaceful in certain ways as a member but walking through it now as someone who no longer believes all of those things that kind of cushioned my temple experience when I was a Mormon it was so odd to be in the building and just realize how much I just didn't like the building. (laughs) And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that in order to connect spiritually, you need to be in like the perfect setting and environment and the lights need to be dimmed just right. 
But like, the lights kind of need to be dimmed just right, in my opinion. And if I'm going to have a spiritual connected experience, there are things that I want to have in my environment. I love being in nature. I love being in like a cozier, more comfortable place. And the temple just feels to me in retrospect and when I just went through very sterile, almost like empty in a way where it feels oh, it's hard to explain. And you'll see temples too. They're very decorated, but almost like a 90s hotel lobby is kind of the aesthetic. And it just doesn't feel like the place I want to be to connect spiritually, I guess is what I'm saying. And I'm thinking about being in the celestial room where it's just bright, super bright lights, white couches, white everything. And it just never felt like a place that felt intuitive for me to connect spiritually. I just am sympathizing with this person who was sitting in that room trying to feel something, hoping to feel something, and feeling guilt and shame for not feeling the thing that you were told you should be feeling. It's a hard place to be. And I always found the temple a kind of counterintuitive place to actually connect spiritually. Okay, next submission. My dad passed away last year and it was really hard for my family. My husband and I had already left the church sometime before, but we hadn't told my family with everything else going on. My mom wanted to bury my dad in his temple clothes, but his slippers didn't fit anymore. They were sold out everywhere and she couldn't order any in time for the funeral. My sweet husband walked right into the temple in a t-shirt and jeans with his nearly expired recommend and begged them to give him a pair of slippers or let him buy them. They told him they couldn't give away the temple clothes, so he drove to the next closest temple where they told him no again. He demanded to talk to the temple president and told him, my father-in-law served in the church and paid tithing for 40 years and you can't give him one pair of slippers to be buried in? The guilt trip worked and he came home with the slippers. He said if they told him no, he would have just stolen them from the temple clothing rental anyway. <laughs> Ugh, I'm very teary. <laughs> um... I just think that sentence got me where it says my father-in-law served in the church and paid tithing for 40 years and you can't give him one pair of slippers to be buried in. Imagine denying someone that someone who says, hey, my dad just died. My father-in-law just passed and it's important for his wife that he be buried in his temple clothes because that's what a lot of Mormons do. Most Mormons, I think that's typical. You get buried in your temple clothes when you die and for them to say no. Hello. Hello. Why would that ever even be a question? And those slippers probably cost $3 maximum, probably less. That to me speaks to the rigidity, again, of the structure of worshiping in the temple and how everything is so structured and rigid. And they don't even have the flexibility to be like, of course, here's a pair of slippers. I'm so sorry your father-in-law passed. Just like have to make a point to not give the slippers so crazy, so crazy in so many ways, and quite frankly, really sad and upsetting. I also think what this brings up for me, ugh, I'm sorry, I was not expecting this episode to be like this, but what it brings up for me is how little I think the church ever really cared about me, the institution of the church. And I think I felt cared for in a lot of ways by members of the church. And I'm not saying that, but I'm saying like the actual institution of the church, I just don't ever feel like really gave a shit about me as a human being. 
and just how shitty that is to dedicate so much to something and to do as you're told and try and be a good member of this institution and organization and really coming to terms with the fact that for me at least, I don't think I ever felt like they cared. They wanted me to stay. They were trying to keep me. They were trying to manipulate me, but they never really cared if I was good. I know it's difficult for systems or institutions to care about individuals, which is why I think organized religion is really complicated and hard because spirituality is so individual, in my opinion, that once you put religious frameworks around it, it tends to be this way. But yeah, I guess there's a lot of hurt there that I hadn't fully acknowledged around just feeling like not cared for in a very real way by a church that I and so many of us gave so much of ourselves to. Woof, you guys, I'm telling you, that Prozac. And I don't mean to diminish my emotions because I think being emotional about this stuff is perfectly valid and perfectly healthy, but I get very tearful (laughs) when I'm coming off my medication. And yeah, some of this is just hitting me in a more emotional way than I was expecting. So there's that. Okay, here's another one. Stories from a temple janitor. So obviously the temples need to be kept clean and the temple janitor got kind of a behind the scenes view on some of this. I'm not sure if you're looking for stories solely about temple work, but I have so many wild stories from being a temple janitor and seeing behind the scenes while cleaning at night. My first day, I was told I would regularly see spirits who have passed on as they frequent the temple after hours. That freaked me out so bad. So anytime someone would pop their head in to tell me something, I'd jump out of my skin. One time someone commented, wow, you're always so jumpy bitch, what? You told me I would frequently be seeing ghosts around here. What do you expect? Also, I never once saw spirit. Not sure if I wasn't worthy enough or maybe it's all made up. (laughs) I won't go into detail of how many garments were flushed down the toilet from people, ahem, shitting themselves, but I'm forever scarred. Why are people shitting themselves in the temple? I'm sorry to this temple janitor. That sounds not fun. I think this whole spirits thing is really interesting. We were talking about this last week. I'm getting really intrigued and really thoughtful about ghosts and spirits. And I think this is really interesting that they're talking about spirits, essentially ghosts, in connection with the Mormon temple. So I want to hear if anyone has more lore around ghosts that go to the Mormon temple for whatever reason. Okay, this is about baptisms for the dead. I was doing baptisms for the dead for the first time as a 12-year-old. I went with my ward where there were cute boys and girls that I looked up to. I was very confused on the whole underwear situation. This was such a long time ago, and if I remember correctly, they gave you underwear to wear under your jumpsuit, but I didn't understand if I was supposed to wear my underwear under those, or if I wasn't. So I wore my own underwear when I did baptisms, and obviously they got soaked. I didn't bring any backup underwear, and I didn't have a purse, so my little 12-year-old self thought it would be a good idea to put on my underwear on one leg and hold the underwear up with my hand through my skirt. Reminder, my underwear is soaking. When we are leaving the temple, I'm walking up the stairs when my underwear falls down and does a big fat plop on the stairs. My 12-year-old flower hangs on the stairs around my ankle, soaking wet. I have never been more traumatized in my entire life. Oh, I feel this so bad. I feel so many parts of this. You know, when you go somewhere, like I think about this all the time when I get a massage, because I remember the first time I got a massage, they like bring you in the room and they're like, okay, like undress and get under this blanket and I'll be back in in 10 minutes. And then they walk out the door and I was like, undress, that can mean a lot of different things. 
undress undress completely naked bra and underwear just underwear and you're just guessing what they want from you and they're not specific enough that it just stresses you out and I feel like the temple was this way too where there's an assumption that you know things and that you've been there a bunch of times but there's a lot of these little intricacies where it's like wait do I wear my underwear or do I not wear my underwear and you're 12 you don't want to ask anyone oh poor sweet girl bless you for getting through that that is so embarrassing but so valid because they should have said hey here's this this is what you should wear don't wear your underwear like they should have told you that because how are you supposed to know as a little 12 year old I feel for you with that big fat plop of the white hangs on the stair oh I'm gonna read one more story I started my period in the endowment session right before I went into the celestial room on my mission in front of 30 elders. I was not tracking my period because it was definitely not regular while on my mission, so there was no way of predicting when it would appear. On our once-a-transfer temple trip, we made it to every room perfectly fine, no worries or cramping. As I stood up and finished giving the special handshakes, the temple worker who was there to help me with answering the ordinances told me I had a big red spot on my temple dress after I had been standing for three minutes. So embarrassing. I then, of course, sent the experience in my weekly email to my family with the premise of making our red crimson sins as white as snow. You know, if a missionary can do one thing, it is make a gospel analogy out of just about anything. And this is an incredible example of that. This was always my worst fear every time I went to the temple. When you are wearing all white, when you are sitting on everything that's all white, all you can think about is, am I going to start my period? This would be the worst place to do so. I still stand by of any place on God's green earth. The worst place to start your period unexpectedly would be the Mormon temple. I do believe that with all my heart. And I probably spent 80% of my time in the Mormon temple worried I was going to start my period whenever I was there. Okay, for this last story, I have to explain one more thing. Mostly the endowment sessions have that video I talked about, but some endowment sessions are live sessions, which means there are people in front of you reenacting God and Jesus and Adam and Eve and Satan, like the story of all of that, but they are reenacting it live like a play. I never went to a live session, and now I'm kind of sad I didn't because if the video was campy, that would be campy times a thousand to watch that being played out before you by non-actors, just temple workers. But listen to this submission. I was in a live endowment session and the old volunteers playing the roles could not remember their lines. You could hear them whispering over the loudspeaker, Satan, that's your line. <laughs> Satan, that's your line. Because someone was playing Satan and forgetting their lines, which fair because the lines being spoken are strange and there's a lot of them to memorize. That's another thing. Temple workers, their ability to memorize all of that stuff you have to memorize is crazy. I mean, a lot of them are just really old. So they've just been in the temple a really long time and, you know, probably remembered through repetition, but also impressive to store all of that in your brain especially as you get older but seems like satan couldn't remember his lines all right thank you all for joining for this temple deep dive like i said we will dig into all the doctrinal aspects of the temple in due time and thanks for letting me get emotional with you today before i let you go i do want to say thank you so much for the response on the girls camp tote launch the totes are live Go grab one while you can. So 
so special to see orders come rolling in and know that we're all going to be matching in our girls camp totes makes me so happy and feel so supported that people want to rep girls camp so thanks for the orders and if you want one go to girlscamppod.com there's a highlight on instagram where you can find the link and grab yourself a tote thanks again for listening talk soon she i